Scripture reading this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 23. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Our Father, I bring nothing before you today. I have no wisdom, I have no power, I have no ability to do what you are calling me to do. And we as a people, Father, we bring nothing but emptiness to you. Even just to rightfully hear the word of God is not within our power. And to receive the word of God is not within our power. And to apply the word of God as we ought is not within our power. And so we begin this morning by confessing our weakness to you and celebrating the great strength and grace of a God who is willing to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So I pray that you would come now, Lord, and help me to preach as I ought in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us all, including me, Lord, to listen to the word of God today and receive it as we ought in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, as we go out from this place to apply the word of God as we ought for the glory of your name and the upbuilding of the church and the good of our city, indeed the good of the nations. Father, please come now. And do a work among us that we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we give you glory for what you will do because certainly you will hear and answer our prayers. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As I've been saying to you over the last couple of weeks, the story of the book of Acts is the story of Jesus Christ ministering through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ ascended from this earth into his Father's presence, he did not so much entrust the ministry to his people as he did continue to do his ministry through his people. The ministry of the church is the ministry of Jesus, and this is tremendously good news. It means that he gets all the glory, and all we're left with is to take the joy of the fact that Jesus Christ is ministering in our midst. 
Last week we meditated on the day of Pentecost and we watched as Jesus sent his spirit upon his people in fulfillment of his father's promises. We watched as the people of God rose up and proclaimed the gospel in a miraculous way. They spoke in languages that none of them knew and they did it by the power of the spirit and for the glory of Jesus. And we watched as Peter rose up and preached in great power, in great boldness that could not have come from him. Just weeks before this, he was cowering in fear and running for his life, but now he was standing before the very people who had crucified the Lord and he was preaching with boldness. And we watched as the Holy Spirit drew 3,000 men plus women and children into the church by the power of the word that was preached. We watched as the church was born, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this was the pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost, a bride was born on the day of Pentecost. This week, we're going to see that what happened on the day of Pentecost, though in some ways it was unique, was actually the inauguration of a pattern of life that Christ desires for his church all the way down to our day. The Lord wills for his church in a broad way and for this church in particular to be a people who seek the presence and power of the Holy Spirit day by day. He wants for us to be a people who preach the gospel of Jesus in our various worlds day by day. He wants us to be a people who operate in the spiritual gifts that he has given to us day by day so that he is exalted in our cities and so that we are built up and so that the lost come to know him. Beloved, I believe that Christ is here today and in this season of life at GCF to teach us a way of life. And how I pray, how I've been praying, that we'll have hearts to receive what Christ wants to do in the life of his church. Woe to us if we just hear the word of God and fail to do it. Christ is inviting us into a way of life, and I pray that he'll make that clearer and clearer in the coming days. Sometime after the day of Pentecost, Peter and John were walking into the temple complex for the hour of prayer. It took place about 3 p.m. every afternoon, and so they were going there to to pray, and as they were walking in, they went through a gate that was called Beautiful. Its official name was something else, but the people called it the, the, the Beautiful Gate. And as they were walking in, there was a man laying there. He was over 40 years old. He was lame from birth. He was often there at that gate begging for donations. And so as they walked into the, into the temple complex, the man somehow got their attention. I think that his head was down, but somehow or other he knew that he was talking to them and he asked Peter and John for a donation. And, and his words somehow caused the Holy Spirit to grip their hearts. Surely Peter and John had seen this man before. He'd been there begging at the temple day after day, year after year. But for some reason, in this particular instance, the, the Holy Spirit grabbed their hearts and it says that Peter and John stared at him. They just began to look at him. And I actually find this very touching. A lot of poor people, a lot of homeless people are treated like trash. They're treated like they're something less than human beings. And believe me, they really internalize that. They begin to feel like less than human beings, which is probably why he asked for money, but his head was down to the ground. He couldn't even bear to look up at the people that he was asking for help from. So Peter and John, they stared at him. And moved by the Holy Spirit, Peter said, man, look at me. Look right at me. And I don't know what exactly was in his heart, but I assume that Peter wanted him to know that he was looking at him as a human being. He's looking at him as a a valuable person in the sight of God. And maybe, too, Peter was looking in his eyes to see if there was faith there. 
I don't know why exactly Peter called him to do that, but he said, man, look at me. And the man looked right at him. And moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter said to him, man, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter, in a great act of faith himself, reached out his hand and grabbed the man's hand. And the Bible says he helped him stand up. You have to understand something. This man was over 40 years old. He had never stood up in his life. Can you imagine that? I'm about to turn 48. I've stood up a few times in my life. Here's a man over 40 years old, had never stood on his feet. But by faith, Peter grabbed his hand and caused him to stand. And the Bible says that God strengthened his ankles, he strengthened his feet, and the man began walking, and then he began leaping, and then he began praising God, and then everybody began praising God because they knew this guy. And I kind of relate to this because we lived in Berkeley, California for a while where there's lots of homeless people and lots of very sick people. And we've seen men like this man was. And to see a person like this go from lameness to wholeness would have been a miraculous thing. And so the people are praising God and praising God and praising God. And just as it was on the day of Pentecost, the people who were in the temple complex, and there were a lot of them, They heard the commotion over there where this was happening, and so literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathered around where Peter and John and this man were, and they began to inquire as to what had happened. And just as it was at the day of Pentecost, Peter was again gripped by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stood up and he preached a powerful, powerful message. As I have prayed about how to deal with this message over this week, I just can't think of anything else that would be appropriate but just to read this with you. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 12, and let's just see what the Lord did. This was a spontaneous sermon that came out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may stand, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. And all the prophets who have spoken, 
from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, singular, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a powerful interpretation of a miraculous event. This is so much like the day of Pentecost. People see a miraculous thing. They know God has done something unusual. They're hungering. They're longing to understand what has just happened. And Peter puts a presence experience in a, in a biblical, prophetic perspective. He helps them to see that this was all about Jesus. The miracle was not about the miracle. It wasn't even necessarily about that man. It was about the man. It was about Jesus Christ. And he preached Jesus spontaneously, without any preparation, with great, great power. And two things happened. First of all, Many people were moved to the heart by what Peter said. They were struck to the heart, just like at the day of Pentecost. And the Bible says that another 2,000 men came to faith in Christ. So now the church is made up of 5,000 men plus women and who knows, maybe some children who had come to Christ as well. So you have a church now that went from 120 people in just a very short period of time is now up somewhere between 9,000 to 12,000 people by the power of the Holy Spirit. God did this. God was preaching through his apostles and moving with great power upon his people. A second thing that happened is that some of the most powerful people in Jerusalem, people who controlled the temple complex and the entire legal system in Israel, they became greatly annoyed at the apostles. These were the very men who had killed Jesus or at least handed him up to be crucified and they thought that they dealt with the problem of Christ when they killed him. But now, A few weeks later, 50, 60 days later, they're seeing that although they gave up Christ to be crucified, this problem of Jesus was still on their hands and they were greatly, greatly, greatly annoyed. And so they arrested Peter and John and they put them in custody until the morning because it was evening by now and they were not allowed to conduct their business in the evening. So they put them in jail overnight. In the morning, they brought them out They brought the high priest and his entire high priestly family, which is a really big deal, and they began to interrogate the the apostles with a simple question. They said, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, raise up this man. Make this lame man to walk again. Peter was again filled with the Holy Spirit, and he answered that they had done what they had done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then he said, whom you crucified, so he's telling, he's, he's confronting the people who executed Jesus at the risk of his own life. I hope you can see that. He was taking his life in his hands to throw this in their face. You crucified him, but check it out. God raised him from the dead. Your actions did not have the final words. And then Peter quoted the words of Psalm 118. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a brave man. The leaders of Israel 
were astonished by this. They were astonished by this defense, mainly, the Bible says, because they knew that these two guys were just common, everyday, uneducated people. They had not been to seminary. They had not been to whatever their equivalent of college was. They were just fishermen. They were just guys. They were blue-collar people who had been taken over by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these extremely educated, empowered men were blown away by them. Where is the boldness coming from? Where is the wisdom coming from? Where is the courage coming from? And it says here that they took note that they had been with Jesus. And I take that to mean that they saw the spirit that was upon Jesus. Now they saw in Peter and John the same boldness, the same courage, the same impenetrable wisdom, the same unwillingness to bow to power brokers. They saw the spirit of Christ upon his people and they did not know what to do. The man who had been healed was standing right there with them, and nobody could deny what happened. So what were the leaders of Israel to do? They wanted to punish these guys, but they knew that if they punished them, the people would turn on them. So walking in fear rather than in faith, they decided to warn Peter and John and to threaten them and then to release them. When they had done this, Peter and John answered them boldly and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, we'll let you judge that. But we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. It's not that we're being rebellious. It's that the Spirit of God has come upon us, and we simply must speak about Christ. I'm sure that that was not the answer the leaders wanted to hear, but they didn't know what to do. So, They threatened them more and more, and I'm sure they were serious threats, and then they let them go. Peter and John went and gathered back with the church. They told them everything that had happened. They told them what had been said in the secret courts of the leaders of Israel, and the church began to rejoice greatly at what God was doing, and somehow a spontaneous prayer meeting broke out. I doubt very much that this was planned. I think it just happened. Somebody began to pray out. Somebody began to speak, and God took hold of that room in such a powerful way. I don't know who the speaker was, but we read this prayer. Jordan already read it for us, but I want to read it with you again. Chapter 4, starting in verse 24. Somebody stood up in the power of the Spirit and said this spontaneously without preparation. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth sent themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words, help us to fear you more than we fear them while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Oh, beloved, how I love this prayer. So much exalts the glory of God. It so much puts its eyes on the right things. It puts current experiences and events in the light of biblical history and prophetic uh, predictions. 
It is at one and the same time a prayer against the oppressors of the church and for the oppressors of the church. And what I mean is that I hear the apostles basically saying, God, stop them from stopping us so that we can preach the gospel to them. Stop their threats against us so that we can preach. And then when we preach, may they be saved. Indeed, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that's what they were doing. Beloved, this prayer really honestly moves my heart. And I think it moves God's heart all the more, much more than mine. Because in that day, he answered his people with power. In the very moment that they were praying, the Bible says that the place where they were meeting began to shake like an earthquake. And being from California, it's not hard at all for me to imagine what that would be like. But it was not an earthquake. It was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Bible says that the Spirit again filled his people, just like he did at the day of Pentecost. A new filling of power, a new filling of presence upon his people. And this time, they did not speak in tongues. This time, the result of it was that they boldly proclaimed the word of God at the very risk of their lives. And just as it was in chapter 2, so Luke closes chapter 4 to a conclusion by drawing our attention to the nature of the church. You can see that there at the very end of chapter 4. The pinnacle of the day of Pentecost was that the church was born and that it was characterized by eight things that made it very Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. And now here at the end of chapter four, we see that the pinnacle of the miracle done to this man and the pinnacle of the preaching of the gospel, the pinnacle of 2,000 more men plus women and children coming to Christ, the pinnacle was that the church continued to grow and to prosper along a certain line. The same characteristics that were there in chapter two are still here at the end of chapter four. And I think Luke is trying to teach us something here, beloved. Pentecost was unique in some ways. But what it really was, was the beginning, the inauguration of a way of life that Christ desires for his church, the result of which is that a bride is formed, a bride that is beautiful to him, a bride that is attractive to him, a bride that he cannot wait to bring to himself and marry forever and ever and ever. What an incredibly blessed time this was. One of the great lessons we learned from this is that external opposition to the church cannot stop the forward movement of the gospel or the growth of the church. It simply cannot. The ministry of the church is the ministry of Jesus through his church. So if you can stop Jesus, you can stop what he's trying to do. If you can fold up the universe in the palm of your hands, then you can stop Christ. If you can control the sun and moon and stars, then you can stop Christ. If you can make nations rise and nations fall by nothing more than the power of your will, then you can stop Christ. But if you cannot do these things, you cannot stop Christ. And therefore, you cannot stop the forward movement of the gospel into the world and the growth, the prospering of his church. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It does not matter what threats you make. You cannot stop Christ. As Paul would later say, you can chain me, but you cannot chain his word. This is the lesson we learn, beloved. Nothing will stop the gospel of Christ. People can be persecuted. Churches can be persecuted. Local things can go wrong and bad, etc. But when you look at the church in a global way, nothing will stop Jesus because nothing can stop Jesus, plain and simple. 
the early church grew by the power of the Holy Spirit as they preached the gospel and performed signs and wonders. It's a very important lesson. We'll talk about this more in a few minutes. The early church grew by the power of the Spirit as they preached the gospel and performed signs and wonders. At the end of the day, what happened with this man and what happened with Peter's sermon was about the greater movement of the gospel and the growth of the church. And because this was Christ's ministry, nobody could stop it. Now that the newborn bride of Christ had faced an important test of an external opposition, it was time for them to face another kind of test. Now they had to face a test of internal compromise, of moral compromise, and it was a serious test. In those days, the people were so moved by their common bond in Christ that they thought it nothing to share their material possessions with each other. If you had a need and I had material possessions, I would have no problem handing you over my possessions because I didn't care about my possessions. I shared Christ in common with you. So what's money to me? What's a car to me? What are clothes to me? What's even a piece of property to me? We have Christ together. One of the people in the church in that day, his name was Barnabas. Surely you have heard of him. He decided to sell a piece of property and bring all the money and give it to the church for the glory of God and the blessing of the people that were there. It was not a compulsory gift. Nobody guilted him to do this. There was no giving campaign in the church. This came from his heart. Nobody expected him to get a lot of attention for this, and he certainly wasn't after honor for himself. He was after honoring Jesus and blessing his people. This was a sincere gift that came from the heart, and he brought it before the church. But of course, people knew about this. There was a couple in the church named Ananias and Sapphira, and I think that they craved the honor and the attention that Barnabas got by what he did. And so they decided to do something similar, and they sold a piece of property, and they brought money to the church to say, here it is. Here's everything that we got for the property. But the truth is, they were lying. They, let me just make up the numbers so it can make some sense to us. Let's say they sold a piece of property for $100,000. They bring $75,000 and give it to the church, which isn't a problem at all. They could have kept the money for themselves. But they put the seventy-five grand on the table and say, that's everything that we got for the property. They were lying. They were lying to the church. They were lying to the Lord. Somehow, when this happened, Peter was again filled with the Holy Spirit, and he knew that they were lying. He knew that this couple had just committed a very serious public sin. And so, gripped by the Spirit, he said this. This is in verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now listen carefully here. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, Peter is saying, you didn't have to sell this property. You were under no compulsion. You could have kept the property and been perfectly pleasing to the Lord. Nobody said that when you came to the church, you had to give over all your possessions. That's what cults do. That's not what the church does. You could have kept this property, and you know it. And then Peter said, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, he could have done anything he wanted. So let's say he had a hundred grand in his hand. He could have kept all of the money and done anything he wanted with it, of course, as long as it was pleasing to the Lord. 
He could have given any part of the money to the church and kept a part for himself. No problem. He could have handed it all over to the church. It was completely at his disposal. Nobody was threatening him. Nobody's pressuring him. The existence of the church was not a money-making scheme. They didn't want his money. They didn't need his money. Ananias, you could have done anything you wanted with this money, so why? Why did it seem good to you to lie to the Holy Spirit and to lie to this church in such a public way? Who put this deed inside of your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Wow. What a heavy public confrontation. The Lord obviously took this very seriously because right there on the spot in front of the people of God, we don't know where they were meeting, but somewhere this was a public moment. Right there in front of the people of God, God took Ananias' life right there. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Imagine that somebody in this room right now is holding back secret sin and God exposes it right here, of his own accord, of his own will. Not a scheme of the leaders, not a scheme of the church. God does it. God somehow exposes that sin. And then in the confrontation of that sin, right here, right in front of us all, God takes somebody's life. What would that feel like? What would it cause inside of your heart? Luke says that everybody who saw this happen was filled with the fear of the Lord. And I can certainly understand that. But as if that was not enough, three hours later, this guy's wife walks in the door and the whole situation repeats because they ask her, so what happened with the land? And instead of telling the truth, she gives the spiel that her and Ananias had come up with. She lied to the Spirit. She lied to the church. And God publicly took her life. Wow. Something worth pondering, beloved. Something worth pondering. It's possible that Ananias and Sapphira were actually true believers. It's possible that right this second, Ananias and Sapphira are in the presence of Jesus Christ. God sometimes greatly disciplines his own children, and that doesn't mean that they're not his children. So I'm going to leave it to God as to whether they're in Christ or not in Christ. That's his business. But I want to open your heart up to the possibility that here's a couple that got disciplined, but they're actually in Christ. If you think about it, you'll say, whoa, that was extreme to take their life. Well, not if you think about it in the scope of eternity, right? So I don't know what God's destiny for them was, but what I do know is this. God is not to be played with. That much I know. God is such a gracious God. He revealed himself. He said, I am merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. But often what we end up doing is taking advantage of the grace of God. We play fast and loose with him. We play fast and loose with with his bride. We think it's no big deal to break his commands. It's no big deal to not live in the way that God is calling upon us all to live. But it's a big deal, beloved. Sometimes he will drastically and publicly discipline his people. Other times he lets us persist in our sin for whatever reason. But please believe me, the day of reckoning will come. Please hear the word of the Lord. There comes a day when his mercy gives way to wrath, when he vindicates his holy name in the sight of all. He will do that. He will do that. And I pray that something of the rightful fear of the Lord that fell upon this church, that it would fall upon this church right here. I pray that we would freely, joyfully walk in the grace of God, 
I hate the atmosphere of legalism. I hate that atmosphere. It is not a godly atmosphere. Paul calls that the doctrine of demons. And I'm not talking about a a legalistic atmosphere. I'm just saying, I pray that we walk in a way where we tremble at the holiness of God and we do not take our sin lightly and we don't take public lying lightly. We will respect the Lord and respect his people and walk by his grace in the integrity of our hearts. Oh, how I pray that we'll learn the lesson of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One of the great lessons here, though, is not just about what happened in particular, but it's, a, it's this. Just as external opposition could not stop the gospel, so internal compromise could not stop the gospel. We see beginning in verse 12 that the gospel marched on. And surely, if we were in this early church, this would have been a great question on our minds. What's gonna happen now? We just watched, we went to church this Sunday, and two people died at church. Wonderful worship service, huh? Seriously, put yourself in their shoes. You would be wondering, oh my Lord, who else is gonna get exposed? What else is gonna happen? What about me? I better repent. Is the church going to make it? Are are we going to stagnate? Are we going to die? What's going to happen? Well, verse 12 begins to answer in no uncertain terms. Please look there with me and let's just read a couple verses. Chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is a part of the temple where people used to gather for meetings. None of the rest of them dared to join. In other words, people wanted to come to the church, but they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. More than ever. 3,000 added in one day. 2,000 added in another day. More than ever, believers are added. Multitudes of men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter, as he came by, might, might at least cast a shadow on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The main point of these verses, again, beloved, is that the gospel cannot be stopped. It's a huge crisis in the life of the church, but the answer comes from Jesus. I will discipline my people. I will purify my people and the gospel will go forward. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can stop Jesus Christ. Amen? We live by this hope, beloved. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can stop Jesus Christ. The gospel goes forward. The church moves on, period. The the apostles apparently understood this truth well because at the risk of their discomfort and even of their death, they boldly preached Jesus They boldly surrendered to the Holy Spirit as he began and continued to work through them with signs and wonders. And indeed, opposition arose again from the high priest and from all his people. They were filled again with jealousy, with rage, with disgust, like they couldn't control this movement. They were so upset about it. And so they arrested now, not just Peter and John, they arrested all of the apostles. And they brought them into the court, into the highest court in the land of Israel, actually. They brought them before the entire senate. But God, not wanting to be outdone, the night before that happened, he sent his holy angel into the jail and he released his apostles from jail and the angel told him, go out and preach and teach. Now wouldn't that be frustrating? If you're already frustrated with the movement in the city that you couldn't stop, 
And you thought, well, here's what we'll do. We'll put these clowns in jail. And then you put them in jail, but God sends an angel to let them out of jail. The next morning, the apostles in obedience to the Lord went out and preached and they taught at the risk of their lives and soon enough the leaders of Israel discovered what happened and they went and they rearrested them and they brought them back before the Senate and they began to just threaten them. The Bible even said they wanted to kill them. They wanted to crucify the apostles that were appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what was in their hearts. God was setting up a new administration, a new kingdom, a way to bless all the nations of the world. And here his very people wanted to kill his administrators. Pretty sad. Luckily, one of the leaders of the leaders, a man named Gamaliel, rose up. And we won't go into the details, but the bottom line is he persuaded them not to do this. He persuaded them to give them a better treatment and just to beat them, warn them, and release them. Might not sound fun, but it's better than being killed, I suppose. Upon their release, the apostles actually rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. Apparently, they remembered the words of their Lord when he said to them, blessed are you when people persecute you. So they treated the prophets, so they are treating me, so they will treat you. Blessed are you. Well, in this moment, by the presence of the Spirit inside of them, they felt that joy. We have been persecuted not because we were disobedient to God, but because we were obedient to God. And look with me then at the final verse of chapter 5. It's where the title of the sermon comes from today. And every day, every single day, in the temple and from house to house, they, the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This was very bold. It was very courageous. But I want to tell you that their boldness was not a matter of bravery Their perseverance in the ministry was not a matter of courage. The early church grew by the power of the Holy Spirit as they preached the gospel and performed signs and wonders. But it was the Spirit working through them. It was not about them. This was about the glory of Jesus Christ magnifying himself in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the world. The church grew by the power of the Spirit as they preached the gospel and performed signs and wonders. Now, we're going to continue to see this as we work through the book of Acts, but we've already come far enough now in five chapters to understand a a critical truth. So I want to say it now, and then in coming weeks, we're going to keep coming back to this. I said it at the beginning of the message already. The day of the Pentecost was unique in some ways, but the day of Pentecost really was an inauguration of a way of life that Christ wants for his church, that he wants for this particular church. Even now, The church grows by the power of the Holy Spirit as we preach the gospel and function in our spiritual giftings. Now the reason that I say function in our spiritual gifts rather than to use that phrase signs and wonders is because since these early days of the church, the Apostle Paul came along and he wrote 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And in those chapters, Paul said very clearly that every single believer, man, woman, or child, is given spiritual gifts that they are to use for the glory of God and the common good of the church. And what I'm saying to you is that the principle still remains. The church grows by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by plans, not by our strategies, but by the power of the Holy Spirit as we simply preach the good news of Jesus Christ and function in our spiritual gifts. 
That's how it happens. Simple, simple way of life. Seek the Spirit day by day. Preach the gospel day by day. Function each of us in our spiritual gifts day by day. This is how the church grows. The main point of application I take for us then as a people is the same thing I've been saying for the last couple of weeks. And as long as the Lord grips my heart with this, I will keep saying it until he tells me to move on. But we need, beloved, to learn how to be a people of prayer. The only way to begin this process is to humbly come before the Lord and wait until he grants us power from the Spirit. We have to have patience and persistence in prayer. It doesn't take a lot of fancy praying. It doesn't take any fancy incantations or anything like that at all. The process begins when the humble people of God come before their great God and simply say, Father, without you we are nothing, we have nothing, we need your presence, we need your power. And beloved, as we develop that habit, the Lord is, is pleased to put his power upon us that we might preach the gospel and function in our spiritual gifts. And when that happens, this church will prosper. It will prosper. I don't know what the numbers will look like. It's secondarily important anyway. What I know is that we will walk in the will and ways of God as we learn this lesson. The church grows by the power of the Spirit as we preach the gospel and function in our spiritual gifts. Let me close by just telling you a story about a church in New York that really moved me. I heard this years ago, and I couldn't stop thinking about it yesterday as I was preparing, and so I thought I would just share it with you. Just a simple uh, example of how this might look in the life of a church. There's a church in New York City called Brooklyn Tabernacle. It's pastored by a guy named Jim Cimbala. He is like the whitest guy you've ever seen in your life from Indiana, and he moved into the blackest neighborhood in New York years and years ago to take this little church that was dying. In fact, I remember one story. One day he was preaching there, and the pews were so decrepit that sitting off to his left over here, there were three African-American ladies there faithful to the church for years and years, and while he's preaching, the whole pew breaks, and they just fall to the ground. Now, what amazed me most is he never stopped preaching. He just kept preaching. They got up off the ground and went to the pew back behind them, and on they went. Over time, God gripped this church with a passion to pray. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and God prospered them and prospered them. And one thing that happened was his wife, Carol, who is a wonderful musician, doesn't read any music, doesn't have any training, but she's a wonderful musician, she started the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, and God began to use that choir powerfully around the, earth, around the world. A few years ago, they were invited to sing at the National uh, Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And so the night before, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir gathered for prayer, and this is the way they always do it in their worship ministry. When they go to their practice time, they begin with prayer, and they pray and pray until God is done with them. And sometimes they never even get to the practice. For them, what's more important than the music is to be enshrouded in the presence of God. They must have the Lord or they have nothing. That's their point of view. So that night, they gathered in Washington, D.C. to pray, and they prayed, and they never got to practice, and they continued praying, and they never got to practice. They continued praying, continued praying, continued praying, and, and next thing you know, the sun came up over the horizon. They prayed all night long. They never got to practice, ever. Not because it was a plan, not because they felt it was necessary, it's just what God did. God was not done with them, so they didn't stop praying. And they rose up the next morning, and they began to sing, and oh, how the power of God poured out on that people. And I believe the reports that I heard, because the main report came to me through a personal friend of mine who was there. 
His name is Tom White. He's the leader of a ministry called Frontline Ministries. You can look him up online. A powerful man of prayer. And he was in the room that day and he said that when they began to sing, the power of God began to flow in that room. And even the President of the United States broke down weeping, not just crying, but weeping. The power of God was present. And why? Because simple, humble people, none of whom had musical education, they went before the Lord until he was pleased to grant his power and then they walked in obedience to what he had given them to do. A simple way of life, beloved. And they learned that at their church because that is the culture of their church. They pray until the Lord answers and then they move. This is a pattern of life we must learn There's frankly no point of even continuing as a church if we do not learn this. I have hope for us that we will learn, but I'm saying I believe Jesus is calling to us right in this moment. Learn this simple pattern of life. Seek me until I'm done with you and then move out in your life. I know we're busy. I know we have obligations, but may we have a heart right now in this moment to hear the word of the Lord and to obey him. Let's pray now that God will help us with this. Lord, I have prayed so much about these things over the last three or four weeks, and it's clear to me that you want to do a work in this church. The details are very fuzzy to me, Lord. I don't see a lot of details. But I am convinced to the depth of my heart that you want to grip us as a people with a passion to pray until we have heard from you and then for us to move into our cities and do the things that you've called us to do. So please, Lord, come and do your work in us. It's not a work that we can do. Come and grip us with a passion for your glory. Come and grip us with a passion to love one another. Come and grip us with a passion for the lost. Come and empower us to do everything that you are calling on us to do. Father, teach us to die to our ways, to die to our habits, to die to the way we've always done things so that we can live to the way you want to do things. Please, Father, come in power upon your precious bride, glory of Christ, fellowship. Come upon us, Father, empower us, glorify your name through us, edify us in you, and use this church to touch our city and indeed the nations. Lord, I thank you for what you will do. I know that you mean to use your word to shape this church, and so I thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' matchless, mighty, merciful name we pray, amen.